This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. My name is Greg, and I appreciate everyone being with us here today. Make sure to subscribe to our channel. A brand new channel is up on Rumble and YouTube, so subscribe and follow us there. Check out the first few videos that I have posted. And please also subscribe, subscribe, like, and share on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So I'd appreciate that. So today we're going to talk about some economics, not just theory, but also some practical implications of economics and a great seminal, awesome book that I think you should all read. Everyone here who is a free marketeer, a capitalist, everyone here who wants to understand how the world actually works should have already read this book. And what is this book? Today, I'm going to be joined by my very good friend, once again, Las Vegas Carrasco. He's going to be with us, and we are going to be discussing Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Now, this is a relatively short book. Um, It was first published in 1946. That was the first edition. And it is a great treatment of so many of the economic fallacies that we all hear. All day long, you turn on the news, you talk to friends, you talk to people, even take an economics course in college. You're going to hear so much in the way of bad economics and fallacies. And this is an amazing book because in just over 200 pages, Henry Hazlitt goes through and just attacks and takes down all of these fallacies in short, bite-sized chapters. Each chapter is essentially dedicated to you know, uh, an economic fallacy or a topic that you might have heard probably misreported. So that's what we'll be discussing today. But first, let me introduce or reintroduce my great old buddy, Blas Vegas Carrasco. So Blas, welcome. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm really excited. Awesome. Thanks for being here. And for those who don't know, um, I grew up with Bloss. He's a great old friend of mine. He's currently an entrepreneur, a martial artist, and a jack of all trades. And someone who's interested in the ideas of liberty. We've had lots of these great discussions. And so I thought, you know, let's, let me be bringing Bloss on from time to time to talk about a classic old textbook, some great old liberty topic, some liberty warrior or hero, or just whatever we want to chat about. So, um, Bloss, thank you for being back with us on the show. It's been too long already. Yeah, it has. And uh, thanks again for having me. These are always a great learning experience and a lot of fun for me to do. So I'm happy to support uh, your podcast. Awesome, man. Yeah, thanks for being here. So economics in one lesson. Um, So as Liberty fans, as Liberty lovers, um, freedom fighters, we're very interested in economics, free market economics, capitalism, so-called, you know, with the quotes around it. Um, we are definitely free marketeers. We are definitely freedom lovers and capitalists here. But we really need to dive into what that actually means. Why is it inextricably linked with political liberty? How do the two get intertwined? And this book, Economics in One Lesson, really does a great job of kind of taking apart or looking at some of these fallacies, as I mentioned, but they're also intertwined with politics. 
so often your economic choices are, are um, governed by the politics of the moment and especially political fallacies and misunderstandings. So first of all, why Henry Hazlitt? Who was Henry Hazlitt, the author of this book? So Hazlitt was an American businessman. Um, really, he was a business and economics journalist, first and foremost. And, um, you know, he did all of his work in the 20th century. And he was a contemporary of a lot of wonderful free market economists, such as Ludwig von Mises, um, Ayn Rand. He actually introduced the two of them to, uh, to one another. And he did die in 1993, Hazlitt, but um, he had just numerous contributions in terms of some scholarly articles, economic articles, and, uh, and so forth. A real warrior for liberty and free market economics. Um, he was a founding member of the Foundation for Economic Education, um, FEE or FEE. They put out great stuff even to this day, of course. And uh, he was also a founding member um, or one of the original members of the Mont Pelerin Free Market Society, along with um, luminaries such as Milton Friedman, um, I believe Hayek and Mises as well. And um, again, he was in Mises's and Rothbard, you know, Murray Rothbard's inner circle of uh, friends and, and economic economists, economic thinkers for many years. And so Economics in One Lesson, as I mentioned, came out uh, just after World War II, and it's had several different editions or, or iterations. So that's kind of the preamble. That's kind of the introduction. Um, this is a great book that I recommend to everyone who wants to cut through those fallacies. And if you want kind of one book to recommend to people that really, really um, explains things well and is a great intro or primer to free market economics, this would be it. Okay, so with all that said, let's dive into it. Um, economics in one lesson. All right, you can actually get this, I think, from Mises.org. You might be able to get a free copy, right, Bloss? Is that, is you, that how you got yours? You, well, that's not how I originally got mine. I just bought mine at half price books. But okay. the copy that I have here, this is the one that you can get from Mises.org uh, for free. And I actually ordered a case of them. You can get a case of them for free. Nice. And nice. You know, I just donated some money to to Mises, um, of course, because you know I, I support what they're doing. And uh, yeah, I've given out I think five or six books already to uh, people who have kind of starting to wake up and show interest in, in this topic. So it's a great, like you said, it's a great primer on economic awesome. ideas. Yes. Spread the word, uh, Mises.org. I'm actually repping. I got Mises here. I got Rothbard. Um, you can get this from AP for Liberty Shop slash Liberty Project. So check that out. Okay, so once you've got the book, you, you'll go right to chapter one here after the, the brief introductions. And you're wondering, okay, what is this magical lesson? What is it that, uh, that I need to know? What cuts through everything else here in terms of economics? And so let me just read what this very simple lesson is. And then it's all going to begin to, to be clear and it's going to crystallize, I think. And so to quote Hazlitt, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. So two parts to that very simple sentence. Um, you need to look at not the short-term, but the long-term effects of the policy that you're pursuing. 
And you need to look not only at the effects for one chosen group or one favored group, but how does this policy in economics affect everybody? Pretty direct, pretty pretty powerful and simple, I, I think. What do, you, what do you think, Blas? Well, you cut off very briefly there, Greg. I didn't catch much of that. But um, I know that you were reading there his definition of basically, which kind of sums up the lesson in a nice, concise way. Um, yeah, I think this is something that plagues a lot of different uh, people's, I guess, perception of economics and how they look at various policies, you know, doesn't matter really what you're talking about, which we'll, we'll find out here in a little bit that this one description kind of permeates into many different aspects of our lives. And here's the thing though, like, you know, with people, people always want, and I think you would agree with this. I think many people want the quick fix. Many people want, you know, the feel good solution that gives that, you know, instant dopamine rush or whatever, um, of feeling good and trying to do good. And, and even though they may be well met, or I guess, well-meaning intentions, it doesn't mean that they're the right decisions to make, um, because they are kind of stuck in that short term, uh, perspective. They don't consider what's going to happen, you know, a year, five years, or even 10 years down the road. So, you know, yeah, that fallacy, I guess, you know, is spawned by two factors, like you said, you know, policies that are going to benefit individual groups at the expense of other groups, which we um, have been seeing, especially recently in the past few years. And we see it all the time, actually. And then the human shortcomings, you know, of only considering short, short term or short run um, effects, immediate effects on a given policy and, and completely ignoring secondary consequences or what's going to happen later down the road. So, yeah. Yeah. Unintended consequences, right? Yeah. So right after he introduces that lesson, um, he talks about, or this is a direct quote as well. He says, nine tenths of the economic fallacies that are working such dreadful harm in the world today are the result of ignoring this lesson, the one lesson. And I I would say it's probably like 99 out of a hundred. Um, of these economic fallacies. But he goes on to back that up, which is really cool. He goes through all these different real world examples. And so chapter one is really short, but chapter two, when he actually gets into the second part of the book, really the heart of the book, which is the lesson as it's applied. And so chapter two goes right into the fallacy or the myth of the broken window. And so um, many of you out there might've heard the broken window fallacy, but I think it's it's really powerful. It's really important to understand this because it, it really exposes the um, the core fallacy of a lot of modern Keynesianism and a, a lot of the labor theory of value. I mean, going back to Marx and um, some classical economists. But this is a very short, this is like a one page, one and a half page so-called chapter, but it really just is like a short anecdote. And I want to read that here because it's so brief, but it kind of sets up a large part of the rest of the book. So let me just um, begin here. Chapter two, this is Hazlitt once again. So he says, let us begin with the simplest illustration possible. Let us, emulating Bastiat, choose a broken pane of glass. A young hoodlum, say, heaves a brick through the window of a baker's shop. The shopkeeper runs out furious, but the boy is gone. 
A crowd gathers and begins to stare with quiet satisfaction at the gaping hole in the window and the shattered glass over the bread and pies. After a while, the crowd feels the need for philosophic reflection, and several of its members are almost certain to remind each other or the baker that, after all, the misfortune has its bright side. It will make business for some glazier, or like, a, I guess, a window or a glass repairer. As they begin to think of this, they elaborate upon it. How much does a new plate glass window cost? $250? That will be quite a sum. After all, if windows were never broken, what would happen to the glass business? Then, of course, the thing is endless. The glazier will have $250 more to spend with other merchants, and these in turn will have $250 more to spend with still other merchants, and so ad infinitum, on and on to infinity. The smashed window will go on providing money and employment in ever-widening circles. The logical conclusion from all this would be, if the crowd drew it, that the little hoodlum who threw the brick, far from being a public menace, was a public benefactor. Now let us take another look. The crowd is at least right in its first conclusion. This little act of vandalism will, in the first instance, mean more business for some glazier. The glazier will be no more unhappy to learn of the incident than an undertaker to learn of a death. But the shopkeeper will be out $250 that he was planning to spend for a new suit. Because he has had to replace a window, he will have to go without the suit or some equivalent need or luxury. Instead of having a window and $250, he now has merely a window. Or, as he was planning to buy the suit that very afternoon, instead of having both a window and a suit, he must be content with the window and no suit. If we think of him as a part of the community, the community has lost a new suit that might otherwise have come into being, and is just that much poorer. The glazier's gain of business, in short, is merely the tailor's loss of business. No new employment, in scare quotes, has been added. The people in the crowd were thinking only of two parties to the transaction, the baker and the glazier. They had forgotten the potential third party involved, the tailor. They forgot him precisely because he will not now enter the scene. They will see the new window in the next day or two. They will never see the extra suit precisely because it will never be made. They see only what is immediately visible to the eye. And that is very simply, that's chapter two right there. So thoughts on that, on that Bloss, on that brief chapter. Yeah. Um, you know, it was funny. I, when I first read this, I had not really considered that, you know, and, but to, uh, to speak this to, <laughs> and, and, and to put it in a simple way, one person's gain is another person's loss ultimately. Right. So, um, and it's quite common that people are only going to consider what is immediately visible, you know, why that is, I don't know. I mean, but they're not seeing the flip side of that coin. Right. So really the only thing that happened was a shift in, uh, in business. Like you gave business from one to one guy, instead of giving it to the other, nothing was really gained, you know, on the overarching idea of creating more employment or this, that, and the other, it would just shift it, you know, but one right. guy did lose out on the deal, the tailor. So, um, and, and so this, this broken window fallacy, I think we talked about it earlier before we went live 
which I'm sure you'll go into. Um, everything else in the book is like an elaborate version, or you'll see that it's an elaborate um, extension of this fallacy, which is quite cool to see as it evolves and develops with each chapter. Yeah, and so you really get into almost like a um, almost like a zero sum type of game, right? Um, instead of like moving forward with um, you know additional production or new ideas or um, any kind of innovation in the market, instead of moving forward now, that two hundred fifty dollars is really backward looking, right? And it's just replacing what was already there. And then, as you said, and as Hazlitt said. That $250 is not going to buy the new suit or whatever it is. The suit is just an example, right? You could be buying anything, but um, it could be the next new piece of technology, you know, pushing technology forward or whatever, right? But now it's backward looking and we're just spending $250 to get back to where we were before. And and that's really the key, um, one of the key realizations. It's it's not, oh, good, we're adding value to the economy or we're creating something. We're not creating. We're just getting back to square one um, with this broken window example. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You know, it's funny about this. Let's talk about this fallacy just for one more second. So he spent money on a broken window, but like you said, it could have been a suit. He could have spent the money on something else. But let's let's say he wanted to spend something, like you said, on some new piece of technology or a new something that was going to bring more efficiency to his business, right? Well, he can't spend the money on the machine that was going to make him more donuts or whatever it was going to be and, and potentially hire more people, right? He's now got to shift that money over to some something else. So, um, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't a suit, maybe the guy was going to do something else with that, with that money that now he has to spend on replacing this window. So there's always going to be a loser in that scenario, you know? So like you said, it's a zero sum game. It's just like kind of, it kind of uh, evens out, I guess, you know, there's no um, additional anything that's going to come from that. Headaches will come from that. Yeah. And, uh, and window, but. $250 <laughs> less donut innovation. <laughs> yeah. is, um, you know, that's kind of a scary thought. You know, I don't want to miss out on the donuts. But yeah, I mean, that $250 could have been um, even loaned out to a friend to start a new business in the community or whatever. So, you know, just repairing like a broken window, you know, and, and I don't want to hit this too hard, but it really doesn't push anyone in the community forward. It doesn't expand the economy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really do much but replace what's what's already been broken. Yeah. And then so taking this and then moving on to chapter three, you know, kind of taking this idea, the broken window fallacy. We see it. We hear people talk about it. We hear idiot politicians and warmongers talk about it in relation to battles and war. And I mean, a lot of people, this is their understanding of even American history. What ended the Great Depression? Oh, World War II ended the Great Depression. Um, This kind of idiocy. So chapter three is essentially kind of hilariously called the blessings of destruction. (laughs) And you know, it's, it's a little bit ironic and, and it's kind of funny too, kind of tragic. We're almost going through some of that right now. But when there's such cheerleaders and warmongers, you know, who, and people who just try to look at the positives, the net positives or benefits of war. Um, and of course, I don't think there are any net positives at all, but even positives straight out. You know, we're thinking about, oh, full employment in the war machine or whatever. Are we actually better off with war than peace? 
Um, this is kind of one of the ideas that are that are brought up in chapter three by Hazlitt. Are we better off economically with war than peace? And the idea is ludicrous. I think to a lot of junior high kids who first hear this about like World War II pulling us out of the Great Depression, it kind of sounds plausible, right? You basically take all the young men, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you pull them out of whatever situation they were in here in the US in the latter stages of the Great Depression. And the Great Depression did last for many, many years, even with all of uh, FDR's idiotic employment and make work programs, you know, unemployment was bouncing up and down and it was still awful back in 1937, 1938. It was very high on the eve of World War II. But yeah, if you take all these young men and then you just automatically put them in a government make work program, which is, you know, what essentially what the military is, um, you can argue about the merits of of um, going to war, um, but we're basically sending an entire generation to war. Well, yeah, of course you're going to lower unemployment. The question is, what are those young men and now young women as well? What are they engaged in? You know, is it building? Is it creating value for people? Is it making people's lives better? Or is it getting mired in some awful war where they could lose their life? You know, is that kind of activity productive? Um, and, and then also one of the key things in this chapter, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. We were kind of joking about this before, Bloss, but the difference between need and demand. So if you destroy an entire village somewhere in France or you know, God forbid in Syria or Ukraine, you just destroy this village or this town. Yeah, there's going to be a need for new housing and new bakeries, uh, new grocery stores, of course. And that's tragic because a lot of the people there are suffering, right? But that's not demand in terms of the economic sense. You don't have the purchasing power. There's not that ability to just replace what was lost immediately. There's an immediate need as soon as your house is blown up or your apartment, your apartment building's destroyed, but that shouldn't be confused with um, a healthy economy or demand increasing. So w- what are your thoughts on that? It's almost like, well, it is exactly this. You've used, governments will use like, you know, this uh, war or the just pure destruction as a way to artificially create the idea of demand right? Which is crazy. It's a crazy idea. Like it, it sounds right. I don't know, man, like, like some sadistic, like business plan or whatever, (laughs) you know, which I guess you could debate is that that's what it is in fact. But, um, yeah, you're just moving, you know, this diversion of demand, I guess, you know, it's, you're just moving, I guess, purchasing decisions are moved from one product to another that's all that's happening in in this particular case and yeah it's i don't know it's crazy it's sad that 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 happens you know like you said yeah there's definitely going to be a need for houses but that's only there because well we destroyed everybody's houses you know (laughs) yeah and which um, is not healthy economic demand it's just creating an instant need yeah an instant need and so But, you know, it's funny that I'm going to go back to something you said just a minute ago that relates to all of this, of course, when you said, you know, high schoolers first hear this idea that, you know, what brought us out of the Great Depression was World War II. I mean, I remember that hearing that stuff when I was in high school and then later kind of, uh, you know, spewing 
what I've only read in, in high school textbooks that, you know, war creates uh, jobs and, you know, it's good for the economy and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, and then when you read this, you can't help but almost be a little, I don't know, I was kind of felt a little pissed off, <laughs> you know, there's lies that you're taught basically in high school economic class or high school history or government class. So yeah, it's an eye opener when you, when I read this thing and you're just kind of going through it and you're really thinking about it, it's like, wow, that's nuts. It's crazy that you brought that up because that was one of the first thoughts that came into my head thinking back to high school and economics. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those um, really, really poignant or it's a really, um, it's a really glaring, you know, or kind of salient point there with the World War II Great Depression thing. And I think it's something kind of a fallacy or kind of just, it's nonsense that we were all taught, I think, or at least we kind of absorbed via osmosis. And, you know, when you actually look into it, you look at the unemployment numbers, not just in 1933 or 34, as the Great Deal programs were starting to come into effect, but look at 1935, 36, 37, 38. You look at unemployment remaining stubbornly high and sometimes shooting back up to the neighborhood of 19%. For years and years, unemployment remained high, even after all of this Keynesianism, after all of this government stimulus. Um, and then you go into World War II, and we have uh, destruction and tragedy. And um, But yeah, we, we had all these young men being sent over to Europe and um, out to the Pacific. And yeah, that's going to have, a, that'll make a dent in unemployment. Now, none of this, I, I don't want people to get spun off or confused. I'm not, I'm not um, critiquing or criticizing individual, you know, um, military members, you know, people in the army or in the Marines or Navy, Air Force, what have you. This is really more of a critique at the largest, you know, level, at the highest level of government and the war machine and some of these economic um, misperceptions, right? So it's not meant to, to slander or disparage the service of individual um, service members or troops by any, by any stretch. Um, okay, then let's roll into uh, the next chapter. And then there are some highlights from, from later chapters too, definitely we want to have time for. But um, the next chapter goes right into public works and public spending. And this is something that's been talked about for 50, 60, 70 years, back to the time when Hazlitt was writing the first edition of this book, we're looking at how much of a role should the government have in public spending? You know, this old, um, it's almost like a meme at this point, who will build the roads, you know, if we don't have the government? Um, and does government spending on roads and bridges, um, often, you know, oftentimes, which are in a state of disrepair or potholes, or they even collapse in some tragic examples, um, we look at this government spending and it's certainly not efficient and it's exorbitant. And a lot of the time, these public works projects are meant to benefit one group over another. You know, just like Hazlitt says, I'm thinking of like um, construction unions, some of those trades, certain people are going to benefit, even certain constituencies in a geographic area. Um, all these projects are doled out with government or taxpayer, taxpayer money. Um, and they're, they really favor one group over another group, right? Bloss? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, I guess it's one of their, I guess it's one of the ways it kind of leads into this fallacy or idea that 
Hazlitt mentions very early, I think in the second paragraph or whatever, where he says, everything we get outside of the free gifts of nature must in some way be paid for. And the world is full of so-called economists who in turn are full of schemes for getting something for nothing, right? So um, hidden in that, there's, I mean, that's how they're getting or I guess that's how they're they're trying to get something for nothing, right? It's kind of kind of how I see it anyway. But yeah, I mean, it's like the the, the ultimate fallacy here, I think, in, in this um, in here is that you know government spending, <clears throat> you know, presented as kind of like the fix all for all of our <laughs> economic uh, ills or, or what have you, right? And he may have even said something like that similar in, in the chapter. Or the stopgap, right? Kind of the um, yeah. the bailer outer of last resort. We always think, <laughs> we always hear that, right? The, oh, the government will step in. The government will save this industry or that industry. And you know, there's that fundamental point that we all know, but it bears repeating. And Hazlitt talks about this: every dollar of government spending must be raised through a dollar of taxation. And liberty-minded people, libertarians, will tell you all day long that taxation is theft. It's not voluntary. So literally with taxation, you're taking money from one person or one group of people, and you're giving it to another group of people or another industry or another project, which may or may not be desired through the market. There might not even yeah. be a, you know, like a, the bridge to nowhere. You know, what was that like about a decade ago? <laughs> yeah. Remember that um, yeah. in Alaska? Well, so was it Ted Stevens or there was some senator, I believe, um, or maybe it was the representative up there. Maybe it was both. But they wanted to bring home the pork, bring home the bacon to their district, right? And so there was some sparsely populated uh, village, I believe. Maybe, was it in the Aleutians or, or somewhere on the Kenai Peninsula? Um, I forget the location. But the point is it was sparsely populated, very remote, and there was this giant publicly funded, taxpayer funded bridge project that went in because that senator, it might've been the representative, those politicians wanted to be perceived positively and they wanted to bring home the bacon. So they take money from taxpayers all around the United States and all 50 states and they get to plop it down and spend on some giant, exorbitant, wasteful project like building a bridge in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> You know what this reminds me of, Greg? What's that? Of uh, the movie Falling Down. <laughs> yeah. where, what part? Where, yeah, where he's uh, he's walking through. He's on his way home. If you guys haven't seen the movie, you need to watch it. It's great. Michael but, Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing a construction on like a road. And <laughs> yeah. he goes in there and he's like, what is all this about? The road was perfectly, perfectly fine like yesterday or whatever. <laughs> What's wrong with right. it now? So when I... When I was reading this chapter, the falling that part that scene in falling down came to mind. You know, yeah, just spending for for no reason. And he goes into like taxpayer stuff. I think even on the in that movie at that point, I can't remember, but yeah, it, that's what I'm thinking of. Pretty yeah, funny. he's an angry dude who uh, has been working in the military industrial complex, and he has a bad afternoon one day. <laughs> but I think yeah. in that scene. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's somewhere on some crowded, trafficy LA freeway. He just gets out of yeah. his car. He's had enough, right? And he goes up to these construction guys. Doesn't he end up making them admit that, like, they don't know? There's nothing wrong with the road. They're just jackhammering it or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. He, he he makes them admit, and then uh, there's I no think reason he even for gives it. 
Yeah, he's like, well, let me give you a reason to fix the road. And he like shoots it with a bazooka or whatever. I don't even know what he does. But <laughs> right. It's hilarious. It's quite hilarious. But he does get them to admit that ultimately there's just nothing nothing uh, to fix. And then the guy, I think, the construction worker says, hey, buddy, I'm just here, you know, I'm just here getting a payday or whatever. Ultimately, I think is what the guy says. Exactly. It's kind of funny. Yeah, there are a lot of themes like that in, in that movie. It's a fascinating movie, actually. Um, Maybe we'll do a video on the on that movie. That'd we should. Yeah, we should. That'd be that'd be awesome. So, yeah, there there's everyone who's listening. There's your second homework assignment, if we can call it that. <laughs> Read Economics in One Lesson. Go to Mises.org. You even get your free copy. Or talk to Bloss. You know, message Bloss. Maybe he'll send you one of his case <laughs> free yeah. uh, free free copies. <laughs> And then second one is go check out the movie Falling Down. You, you'll be entertained. Um, it's it's a great movie, as I recall. Man, I haven't seen that in like a decade, maybe 15 years. Um, okay, so yeah, public works. I mean, remember that you're taking $1 away from productive or useful activity or someone's savings or investment, and you're putting it into a project um, that was not necessarily called for in the marketplace. Otherwise, it probably would have been initiated in the marketplace. Okay, so mm-hmm. um, that's chapter four. Now, there are, uh, what, 20-something chapters, so we're, we can't <laughs> go through all of them. I've got a few more, like, highlights. I've got, I've got some, there are some great chapters in here, and a lot of these are very contemporaneous or contemporary um, issues that we're looking at today. Um, so I've got... Definitely one thing I wanted to talk about was even we could talk about government price fixing um, or, you know, price controls. But were there any others before Chapter 17, Bloss, that you had marked down or anything else you wanted to, to mention? Because there's so much in this book. Yeah, there is so a lot. Here. There's a lot to um, to talk about. I don't know. I mean, disbanding troops and bureaucrats, I mean, they kind of stuck out a little bit. Um, yeah. And I think only because as I was reviewing the book, you know, you start thinking about, you know, what's happening right now, you know, uh, troops being or what's been happening actually for like the past 20 years, you know, troops being sent to fight these ridiculous wars only to come back to what exactly um, and then how that impacts, I guess, the economy. But other than that, there wasn't really anything that was really glaring that that I wanted to talk about. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you can expand on this because this was an area that, uh, that I'd like kind of some in your insights on, like when he speaks to tariffs and kind of like, what are you seeing happening now? If anything, that like the impact of, I guess, tariffs, like who's that benefiting, who's it protecting and all that. Um, like in today's current landscape, especially kind of what's been happening like overseas with like, you know, the R and the U war, the Ukraine and Russian war and all that stuff. So what, what's your feedback or input Yeah, there? well, tariffs are something that are always kind of um, always in the background, right, of our political discourse. And of course, Donald Trump, you know, the last president, um, this is something I was against, but, you know, he brought back, he was cheerleading for tariffs. He brought in a lot of tariffs. He made certain goods much more expensive, um, much more difficult for consumers to get. So tariffs are one of those things where they can be applied very cynically, 
right? Very cynically by politicians intervening in the free market. And essentially the thought is, let's put this, uh, it's almost like a tax on imports um, from foreign lands, you know, foreign made goods. Let's put a tax or like a charge to make these um, foreign made goods more expensive, essentially, right? It's almost like Mm -hmm. a tax on imports coming into the country. And the reason that's done is, you know, people always talk about like the trade imbalance and all this sort of stuff. Trump was a huge demagogue on that. You know, the trade imbalance, we're getting ripped off. Well, the people who are buying all the cheap TVs and the cheap Nikes, I, I guess they didn't think they were getting ripped off. Now we can have a conversation about humane work conditions in other countries and what, what the right thing is to do and how, you know, how things can be made ethically and whatnot. But in terms of getting ripped off, were consumers getting ripped off by getting cheaper and cheaper phones, TVs, Nikes, and, and that sort of thing? I don't know if they would all say that they were getting ripped off. Um, yeah. But yeah, tariffs, this is a classic example here. And, and Hazlitt has a chapter on that. Um, he mentions it in more than one chapter. But tariffs are basically trying to favor some sector of the American workforce, some industry here in the United States or, or a handful of industries and make them kind of more competitive or almost justify their inflated wages. And, you know, unions are a big part of that. So you get unionized industries here in the United States and they demand, you know, really, really high wages, oftentimes probably higher than the market would normally dictate. So they band together, they make political politically influenced deals and they get these sweetheart deals to bump up wages and to bump up um, the price for labor essentially right and so tariffs at least someone like me would probably argue that that tariffs really are highly political and they're a way to kind of justify and to defend maybe artificially overpriced labor here domestically and to make labor or at least goods coming in from other countries much more expensive. And so it yeah. it stands right in stark contrast, or it's a great example of Hazlitt's lesson. You're basically favoring one group or a handful of groups here in the US. Um, maybe that's American manufacturing. Maybe they're unionized. You're favoring them over consumers who are now going to have to pay a lot more because the price of these foreign-made goods has artificially gone up, right? Yeah. And that that's kind of how I how I think of it. No, I think that's a great, great summary. Yeah. So yet, yet again, it's one more example of um, Hazlitt was right. Hashtag Hazlitt was right. <laughs> um, or at least, you know, you can make a strong case that what he's arguing for has lots of manifestations that we see today. Yeah. Hey, so maybe then that could be a hashtag. If someone shares your uh, podcast, Haz- Hazlitt was right. Hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should start it. <laughs> um. Your California Liberty Project was right. That could be the hashtag, right? <laughs> um, so I, I had highlighted here government price fixing, chapter 17. That one is definitely worth mentioning. I mean, each of these chapters are great, right? But it's like we have to choose choose a few of them to mention it or to go through. But, um, you know, when we look at price fixing, what I wanted to say about that is this is a great little explanation of the problems and the pitfalls of price fixing or price controls. And... Watch for that coming into our economy here, into the American economy. It wouldn't surprise me if the political conditions were correct, if things kind of fell into place and if Biden felt kind of trapped like he needed to do this. Um, If they can't get inflation under control, we might actually be heading for price controls. Now, price controls are 
you know, really, really dangerous. Um, when you get into like artificially capping the price with which um, producers or retailers can can sell an item, um, then what you're going to end up doing is essentially uh, pretty much discouraging production of that item. It's really, really destructive, this policy, uh, because the market is basically said for whatever reason, whether it's like inflation of the money supply, prices going up, um, maybe there's a temporary disruption where it's harder to get a material. There's some market reason why prices would be going up. And it's not always salutary. It, you know, it's not always healthy. But whatever it is, when you squelch that price signal, you throw the economy, you throw things out of balance. Things get out of whack, right? And yeah. this is like another lesson. It's like the second lesson, maybe. But don't squelch price signals. Don't squelch or artificially silence um, some yeah, signals, essentially, is what I want to mm-hmm. say. Don't turn them off because they carry information. Prices carry information about the market, right? But the government steps in and they put an artificial signal into the market and it causes disruptions and even malinvestment in, in other cases. Um, and so I, I think that we could be headed for price controls um, in this inflationary environment where interest rates are not, they're not rising um, to the level that they probably need to be at, unfortunately. Yeah. So in, in, that, in that chapter, Greg, if, if I'm not mistaken... Now, of course, you have to remember, I, I couldn't find my original copy of the book. I'm using one out of my case or whatever. But um, if I remember correctly, there, he does mention the consequences of of pr- price, price fixing on, you know, supply for a specific commodities or whatever like that. Can you kind of expand upon that if, if you remember that part in the chapter at all? I think so it's price fixing a, as far as um, prices for its certain- effect on... Yeah, it's effect on demand and supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially, um, if you just cap cap the price, demand is going to um, remain the same or actually increase because you know the price is being held below market rates, right? So people are going to say there's that need there, and there's the purchasing power. So therefore, people those things coupled together, people are going to say, oh, you know, that demand is there; it's increasing. Because wow, this is a good deal. Look at this. So what you're gonna what you're gonna do there is as demand increases. Um, on the uh, the flip side of this is that supply. I'm sorry, demand is increasing. Then supply is actually going to drop off because if it's no longer economically feasible for producers to um, to create that product at the market rate, the market clearing rate, and to make a little bit of a profit. If they're not making profits, they're not going to do it anymore, right? They're not going to make the widget. They're not going to make the TV or the tire, right? So then supply becomes disrupted because people are going to say, or companies, firms will say, uh, yeah, no thanks, because um, I'm not doing this as a charity. And so I'm going to get into a different business. So supply can be disrupted. Supply can go down as that demand yeah. flatlines or even begins increasing. And then, right. you know, you've got that supply demand thing. Um which is, you know, you're going to have shortages because that supply demand imbalance can't be worked out or rectified and reconciled via prices. That signal has been cut off. That's been flatlined or held, held constant. And so, you know, increasing demand, but um, flatlining supply or decreasing supply leads to increased prices. And I I think that's kind of some of how he describes it. Yeah. I think that's, this chapter is definitely one that I'll read reread and that I suggest anybody who has 
plans on reading this book, kind of focus on, um, because I think this illustrates, I think this one chapter, I think probably does one of the best jobs of illustrating his original point in the lesson, right? Especially when he's talking about, you know, what you see in the short term versus the unseen consequences you're going to see later, right? And in this case, yeah, it might seem like a good thing, this perceived notion that a demand is increased while a, a widget has been is cheaper, but what they're not seeing is the backside of all of that, you know, how it impacts, you know, suppliers and how it's going to ultimately impact, impact supply because, you know, consumers want good prices and a variety and ample supply of a thing or whatever. Right. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a great, I think, illustration of Hazlitt's, um, lesson which he mentions within those first two chapters i think it's worth yeah what he what he specifically says um blasa i've got it right here he specifically says now we cannot hold the price of any commodity below the market level without in time bringing about two consequences the first is to increase demand for that commodity as we mentioned um because the commodity is cheaper people are both tempted to buy and they can afford to buy more of it. So there's that demand. Demand is there. Demand increases because they have that propensity to buy. And then the second consequence is to reduce the supply of that commodity. Because people buy more, the accumulated supply is more quickly taken from the shelves of merchants. And in addition to this, production of that commodity is discouraged. Um, and so Again, I find Hazlitt to be so succinct. You know, in two or three sentences, he can really kind of illustrate the problems with something and really explain it well. Um, so that's that. That's great. Kudos to Hazlitt on that one. So similar to this is um, rent control. That's another one in chapter eighteen. Um, you know, people people always get into this, especially in expensive cities. Um, it's it's rampant in uh, the big cities of California, the coastal cities. Um, it's it's in place in a lot of places, even Santa Monica, um, throughout I think L.A. parts of L.A. at least, San Francisco, the Bay Area, and you know, people always kind of talk about this, and it has a little bit of a humanitarian appeal, right? Oh, what are people going to do for housing? The poor can't afford the housing. And then they'll also claim, as Hazlitt points out, that the supply of housing is not elastic. So you can't immediately go and build like a new apartment building or a new house, right? Or whatever it is, or a mansion. You can't do that immediately. So people say, well, you know, the market cannot keep pace with this. Um, Of course, you'd be asking, why is is rent skyrocketing? Um, You know, is that a market effect too? But that's a separate issue. So people say housing is not elastic, so we need the government to step in. We need the government to help the little guy or little gal, the little people, um, the working class. And so what Hazlitt says is that when you come in and when the government comes in and caps out the price of, uh, of housing, essentially by via rent control, that rent control encourages a wasteful use of space because you're effectively or the government is effectively making housing and apartments and condos, whatever it is, um, artificially cheap. And so if something's artificially cheap, people have no um, incentive to um, to be frugal, right? People are going to say, oh, cool, I can get a maybe a bigger or better apartment, perhaps, you know, depending on how the rent control is written in, that policy. Um, and of course, under rent control, 
landlords aren't even incentivized to make any repairs or improvements at all because they're not making money on the deal. They have to save money somewhere, right? If the if the market is saying that, ooh, really, for whatever reason, market forces dictate that prices, you know, rent should be going up. Well, if you're capped out um, as a landlord, your other expenses might be going up. What if it's inflationary, like currently today? What if the cost of food and energy and uh, materials, you know, to add on or to to build um, something or to repair your units, you know, your apartments or whatever. What if all those prices are going up? Everything's going up except the rent. Well, all of a sudden, the landlord, the investor is going to say, well, yeah, I can't afford to, I'm not going to put in new carpet. You can use the 10-year-old, 12-year-old carpet. I'm not going to fix that leaky faucet. You know, go fix it yourself. So what ends up happening is the quality of the actual apartment or whatever it is, the housing, that goes down. There's no incentive to make repairs, to improve the property, and to throw more money into this losing investment, right? Uh, and that's a big problem. And then entrepreneurs and landlords for the midterm to long term, they are not encouraged to build any more new housing because if the government's just going to step in and control what you can charge and to kind of abrogate the market forces... Then those landlords are going to be like, you know what? I'll go into a different industry, right? So it's it's yeah. this classic thing of like, oh, I've got a great intention. I want to help the little people. But it's like one domino after another hits and it turns into a total failure or it causes more housing shortages, essentially. It's the big problem. Yeah, sure. And I like what you said there. I think one of Hazlitt's points in the long run, new housing is not going to be built because you know, of mar- the market incentives are low because of, you know, rent controls and all of these things as, as opposed to what would happen, like, uh, compared to like free market. Right. So, right. Then, you know, te- or I guess landlords or entrepreneurs that have zero, zero incentive to like improve a product. Right. If, right. if the rents are low and like you said, they'll move to some other thing. So yeah, they're kind of stagnating, you know, competition, I guess. You know, right, right, or discouraging it rather. <clears throat> yeah, and so related to this is actually the next chapter. You know, seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen um, go together nicely, but then we get into minimum wage laws, which we have here in California, and I guess there are other cities too around the nation, right? Like Seattle and and places like that. A lot of big cities kind of have these. Probably New York City as well. And what that is, it's it's very similar. It's similar to rent control. It's similar to price control. And it's it's something that many places in the US are facing and it causes problems. It wreaks havoc with the economy. And so if you put if you put a lower bound in this case on on um, what people can be paid, that creates this distortion in the market, essentially. And you're basically just just um, just saying that people who don't add enough value, like say it's $15 an hour as the minimum wage, right? You're just basically creating unemployment for everyone who is worth $14.99 an hour or less. Anything, if you're paying someone who's not productive to the, to the tune of $15 an hour, then that's just basically charity or the people that would be worth that. And I'm thinking of even myself at age 16, you know, bagging groceries or whatever. A lot of us, before we acquire skills, we're not necessarily worth what we want to be paid. We want to be paid a lot more. I would have loved to start bagging groceries at $30 an hour, but guess what? I mean, now our, our buddy Chad might 
you would definitely attest to this. I was not worth $30 an hour. I wasn't worth $15 an hour. I wasn't worth $8 an hour then um, in terms of my bagging groceries capabilities. Um, as a human being, yes, of course, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. But in terms of my bagging skills, um, I was not up at that that kind of pro-level $15 an hour, you know, what these people want to make now. Well, I'm sorry. What? Yeah, I, I almost wonder what an elite bagger skill look, looks like. I would like you know? to see that, actually. Elite bagging? Elite grocery bagging? Yeah. It could be turned into a sport, yeah. you know? Well, elite that, bagging. That's what these folks are like getting paid <laughs> paid at that level now, like 15 bucks an hour. Imagine a $30 an hour bagger. I mean, I can't even imagine that level of productivity that that person's bringing. But yeah. um, I mean, all kidding aside, <laughs> it's fun. like, is is the market really saying that now bagging groceries, which, you know, a 16-year-old first entering the workforce or even really a 15 or 14-year-old if they were allowed to work by the government, is the market really saying that that person is worth that much? I don't know. I have my doubts. Um, I think that where these laws are not in place, um, probably in Texas, maybe where you live, maybe in some other states in the South um, that practice economic freedom, um, I would guess that baggers are generally not making $15 an hour. Now, maybe their yeah, wages have been bumped up to 12 or 13. I don't know if it's 10, but I don't think it's 15 an hour. Um, throughout the country. No, no, it's, it's not. I mean, let's face it. You're not meant to be a bagger to make a career out of bagging groceries. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I I, I haven't met one person who wants to bag groceries who didn't want to do something else better themselves or whatever. You know what I mean? Sure. Right. Um, so yeah, now I will say, so like when I owned a business, right. Um, you know, yeah, I could have paid my, my employees, you know, minimum wage, which I didn't. Uh, I was fortunate enough to to make my own determination on how much I was going to pay my staff. Right. Um, and so I paid them, I think, uh, somewhere between $14, $15 an hour. I can't remember exactly how much I was paying them, but it was definitely more than minimum wage. But that was my decision to do so. Sure. Um, because, one... I, you know, it was a martial arts school for crying out loud. We're not open all day long like a grocery store is. Right. So they're getting, you know, minimum hours, not because that's, that's just because of the nature of that, that industry. Right. If I could give them more, I would have, but right. I couldn't because there was no business going on. Um, so, and that was just kind of like a side gig for a lot of them. A lot of them had other jobs, you know, but I felt for myself as a business owner that, okay, yeah, I'm going to pay them, you know, more, definitely more than minimum wage. Um, but I don't think that that should be dictated by any government to say, okay, these small business mom and pop grocery store or, or, um, supply store of some kind open all day long, you need to be paying $15 minimum wage. That's, that's ludicrous. That's crazy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing here that you were perceiving that they were bringing $15 an hour worth of value to your business because it's very personalized, right? You're coaching, you're teaching martial arts, you're working with clients essentially, right? And so that's that's something where they're bringing that value. If they weren't bringing that value for you, I doubt you would have kept them on. You know, if they were only bringing kind of a half-assed, you know, $5 an hour type of effort, 
um, you know, this is, that's, that's intense person on person instruction and coaching, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. There's that. So what they were doing, I felt was worth higher pay and the skills that they brought to the table was worth the higher pay. Like you said, it was personalized instruction. They had to, um, they had to do a lot of other things, office-based work, data entry, um, customer management, use a customer management platform to basically keep the business running. So I saw the trade-off, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going to pay them this because it removes me out of some of those, those day-to-day menial tasks, Yeah, but they're important tasks that need to be done. Yes. I'm going to pay so-and-so X dollars because I think that one, they're worth it too. You know, this is what the job really entails. And it's about that much. Right. You know? Right. <clears throat> yeah. And so this also touches upon um, a, a lot of Marx and we don't have time today to go into all of Marx's misconceptions and idiocy and fallacies, but you know, there's the whole labor theory of value, you know, like um, that's a whole other thing that has wrecked economics. But if we think, you know, if we're, we're bringing it back to Hazlitt, if we think about wages just essentially being a price for labor. So when the government gets involved in this transaction between um, someone who wants to pay for another's labor and then the laborer who wants to sell their own labor at the highest bidder or to the highest bidder, rather, um, that should be a free transaction. Now, obviously, if someone comes in and says, you cannot pay this person less than X. Say it is $15 an hour. Well, then we talked about some of the distortions there that that could occur. And, you know, with Marx, it, it gets even crazier because, you know, Marx is against obviously um, privately held property. So companies, firms owning property and that sort of thing and owning factories. They think the workers, you know, what, whoever the worker class is, the proletariat should eventually own or control uh, the means of production. But, um, you know, even even like radical Marxists would think that you don't have the right, essentially, to sell your labor to the highest bidder. So you're, you're capped at the other end, too. Now, most socialists or most typical Keynesians and kind of, you know, schmucky economic thinkers and typical Democrats don't, you know, they don't carry it out that far. But um, we're definitely creating distortions when we when we put caps um, or floors or when we change that nature of that contract, that negotiation between the person who wants to sell their labor and the person or business that wants to buy the labor, right? It should be a mm-hmm. transaction just like any other. Um, Absolutely. And so, you know, just time time dictates that we, we only have a few more minutes here. I mean, there's so many other great chapters and so many other great examples in this short book. Um, I'm even thinking about chapter 23, you know, the mirage yeah. of inflation, because that's very contemporary, right? We are all facing inflation right now. People are getting hammered with it. Um, it's totally something that hits the the poor and the so-called working classes um, harder than it than it hits the um, the rich for sure. And in our society, and with these inflationary forces and this printing of money, printing of money to prop up businesses, a print, printing of money to prop up the economy. There's this fundamental confusion between the idea of, well, what is money versus what is wealth? And if you just print up a bunch of digital, you know, dollars, little ones and zeros digitally floating around, you know, you know, the treasury is involved in the federal reserve is buying treasury debt and whatnot. You're just putting more, more dollars into the economy. 
all these dollars sloshing around the economy, are they actually getting us wealthier? In other words, do people have a bigger home? Do they have a nicer mattress? Do they have a better tire on their car? No. In no way is more dollars or just creating more money creating wealth. And I know that sounds super basic to a lot of like Austrian and, and also free market economists, but people are thinking that if you just ease up, you know, if you, you prize some kind of like, you put out lubricant almost, you put out something that stimulates the economy, like just dollars, pump more dollars in that somehow that's going to add to wealth. Um, that idea is, is fallacious. Wealth lies in actual material items that make people's lives better right? Or, or goods and services that make one's life better. And so, you know, we could spend an hour on inflation alone and what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, inflation, of course, is an increase in the money supply that often results in increases in prices. Uh, and we're seeing that today. And the question is, once inflation starts, and Hazlitt talks about this, right? Once you get inflation, it's, it's hard to control. It's difficult. It can be destructive to the economy. And uh, here we are, right? That's where we're at in dealing with inflation. Um, so anyway, um, that's kind of, that's right on uh, around the corner. Um, that's very contemporary. It, were there any other like parting thoughts that you had, Bloss, um, before, we, before we get going? Anything else you want to mention? No, I just think, man, I'll be honest with you. I just think that... Um, I think everybody should take an interest in economics. I, mean, I can't remember who said this, but it's like take an interest in economics because economics is always going to yeah. take an interest in you, you know? Um, and <clears throat> like, especially if you know any younger people, you know, that uh, you want to try to give them some better insights and education and kind of expand their, their mind on good economic ideas then absolutely recommend this book. Get them a copy. I've got, I think, a few more uh, hard copies left. If anybody wants one, they can uh, contact me through you, and just uh, I'll send it to you. You know, that's how that's how important I think this book is. That's how important I I think um, it is for people to really understand uh, the importance of kind of economic literacy. I, I should say, because it'll impact. Everything. It impacts everything in your life. Absolutely, man. Yeah. So the book, once again, is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Uh, it's a classic. Make sure to read it. Um, also, I'll put in a plug for uh, AP for Liberty Shop. You can get awesome shirts and tank tops like the one I'm wearing here. AP for, for Liberty Shop.com slash Liberty Project is the code. And go check that out. And um, yeah, that's about it for today. Um, there's so much more in this book that we could cover, but we'll talk about this stuff in future episodes. Um, really important economics fundamentals there. So go read that book. And Bloss, um, have a great weekend, man. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Greg. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk to you again really soon, man. Take care. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.